We're happy to be here with Bob, and as Bob said, both Dr. Holm and I are here for the Prairie Doc Radio Program. To have a Prairie Doc Radio Program, we need a Prairie Doc, and we've got one in studio. He is a physician who has worked with the Vera Medical Group Brookings. He's uh, been a professor with the University of South Dakota Sanford School of Medicine, and he has also done research with South Dakota State University, so he is a man of many talents. Yes. Welcome, Dr. Holm. Thank you. Good so to have you here this morning. So let's talk about what it means to be a prairie doc. I've, I've, uh, we, we tried to um, name our, our, you know, it's branding, you know how that is, branding of, of anything. And um, I, I think the reason that we picked Prairie Doc has to do with the fact that uh, we are on the prairie. This is truly uh, short prairie grass or medium prairie grass right on the, on the edge of the difference. <clears throat> this is also, uh, my home was D. Smith, South Dakota, a little town on the prairie. Uh, and, and people who are raised in this kind of environment are, are really big sky people uh, who live here not, be, not often because of, of tourists here, but, but uh, often because hunting and fishing, because of the farming, uh, because of the um, uh, just the the wonderful lifestyle that you have in a, in communities where uh, people are accountable, small town uh, kind of a of atmosphere throughout the state uh, makes it a special place, and uh, so uh, that's why we we think that it's all right to call it the prairie prairie dock. Um, and you product. defined what a prairie dock is accountable. You know, he's not unknown. He isn't this doctor you see once every six months and you live in a big city and you don't know anything about him. You know, yeah. his family, you know, his <laughs> kids went to school with your kids. He is accountable to you. And that he or she, we have many female prairie docs now, but I think that's a big, uh, the word you used is very yeah, true. I think if you, if you live in a little town, and this could be called a little town, although it's getting bigger. It is. People do know you. You can't really, you don't have the anonymity of the city. You know, you, uh, and there's something about being known that makes you more driven to be responsible. Uh, that uh, every patient that you care for, you better well n do the right thing because you're, you are, uh, your reputation is what makes you. And his or more. her son might come after you too. There so you, you go. better be right. <laughs> No, but it is true. You are accountable. You are known in the community. And I think that's a fine definition of a prairie doc that you do, you take care of your community. Yep, that's and it. And that's what you are. Try to well, do that. now that we've praised the prairie doc, we are going to take our first break. We're going to uh, talk about medicine. If you have a question, give us a call at 692-1430. And we will be back right after these words. Welcome back to Prairie Doc. We're happy to have you listening today. Dr. Rick Holm is here and would be happy to answer any questions you might like to call into the studio at 692-1430. Dr. Holm is also very active in many other uh, facets of communication, and one of the major ones is his television show, On Call with the Prairie Doc, which will be tomorrow night, South Dakota Public Television, 7 o'clock on Thursday nights, and tomorrow they're rerunning a show that was very popular. It was run last December, and it's um, Care to Reduce Suffering. And you had you were hosting it. You had Dr. Arneson, 
who uh, practices palliative medicine in Sioux Falls, and Mary Hill, who was a nurse, is a nurse, has a law degree, fascinating to be both a nurse and a lawyer, and she is vice president of ethics with the Avera Health in Sioux Falls. I think that's a wonderful role to have, and uh, I'm sure she does a fine job at it, but we're talking... the show tomorrow night, we'll be talking about elder care probably, but not just elder, anyone who is going through um, some tough medical decisions. Thinking of tough medical decisions, what you've talked about living wills before. Do you still think that they're pretty important? People pay attention to them? Oh, I, I think that um, if you don't, uh, if you have not discussed with your family your wishes, then everybody presumes that you want everything done. And if you think about going into the end of your life with a wish that says do everything, you're putting yourself at a great deal of risk for suffering. Uh, Because what'll happen is CPR will occur every time. Uh, And you know, as you become elderly, your bones get uh, more brittle. And I can't tell you how many people's chests I've clapped, uh, you know, you can hear the bones and feel the bones breaking oh, as you're doing the CPR. Which has to be painful. Oh, well, the recovery is terrible yeah. because you think about a fractured rib, one rib, but think about the whole sternum, all the ribs along, you know, and when people come out of this, I've seen people recover, particularly younger people that were, were early caught, and I'm not saying do not... Um, do not ever, resuscitate. But do not ever... Uh, uh, withhold resuscitation there's times that you need to do resuscitation it's appropriate but there's also times that it's not appropriate uh and so uh you know uh, uh, dr uh, scott morris is presenting tomorrow um in sioux falls at an augustana conference on health care and um and pastoral um services my wife is the is working as the pastoral nurse for our church, and um, and so she's she said, "Would you like to come to it? It's talking about end of life care." And uh, with that, she's researching him, and she found a blog of his, and one of his comments was, "Rich or poor, and rich and poor are tortured because we cannot accept that death is a part of life." Uh, and that's really true. I think um, that uh, there's a time when people come to the end of their life. Uh, it's a natural thing. We're all going to get there. The question is, how does the medical establishment react to your end of life? Uh, are they going to do everything and do CPR and give you everything and uh, every antibiotic and every feeding tube and every breathing tube and when do you stop? And so uh, the living will is, is, uh, is, uh, it's pretty essential then. Is pretty essential to talk about don't do these things when it looks like my chances are poor and or I'm old and I'm ready to go. Uh, or there's a time when you say don't do any of it. Uh, I think after 80 I would probably say Forget about it. You know, I, 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 I'm not telling you to shoot me, but I'm, I want to <laughs> live when I can. But when I die, let me go. Uh, and um, a living will is uh, to establish uh, your wishes. Now, um, I'll ask you this, Joan. Yes. 
What is more important, writing down a legal document, your son is a lawyer, I know, uh, and uh, establishing a living will and putting it down on paper and having it notarized, or B, that's A, question A, which is more important, A or a B? A or B, and B is? B is talking to your family about your wishes. Well, obviously, I think B, because you can have that document and it's sitting in a lawyer's office, and if the lawyer isn't your son, nobody knows it's there. (laughs) Now, if the lawyer's your son, he's pretty well said, don't worry, I'll put you down, Uh, (laughs) which is sweet of him, but he has to fight four other kids to get that done. Right. So it would be nice if I talked to all five of my children and gave them my advice rather than just just one the long-suffering son right. Right. let's let's put it this way you come to the emergency room at 85 with cancer and or with chronic lung disease and or whatever it might be right right and you have a full cardiac arrest and you have a full living will that says don't touch me and your kids say do saver, it saver. what do you think the er doctor is going to do exactly what the kids tell them exactly because the patient who's pretty much uh, real good chance of dying (laughs) and may well come out of this only with uh, minimal capacity to function or if does come out uh, as a rule doesn't sue the doctor for for uh, resuscitating but uh, the family will sue that doctor for not resuscitating it's a tough deal and the doctor uh, has defense with a living will that doesn't mean that that doctor won't be dragged through one heck of a lot of suffering himself, herself. So uh, the answer is a living will. I, th- I think the combination of making sure that you talk to your family, make a living will and making sure that you share it with your family. It is really a, an instrument for communication with your family. That's and what a living will should be. And part of the communication that is so difficult on people is the fact that all of us are here and we will die and yeah. nobody quite wants to talk about the fact that we're not going to be here forever no no and i you know here here is here's my favorite way of putting a living will and i i've written a living will and Luane erickson and i help do living will uh legislature at least we started it rolling and then they it ended up in the hands of a law law professor at usda dr english and then it ended up uh, in his version. But Luane and I got the ball rolling back in the 80s. And uh, I went to Luane and I said, here's my living will. And, of course, he changed it a, a bunch. <laughs> but um, uh, but it this, was is, there. this is the essence of a living will. Number one, if I had a full cardiac arrest right now, do you want me, uh, do I want full resuscitation? The answer is if you think you can get me back and I have a reasonable chance of recovery, yes. Number two, um, if if I have uh, dementia and uh, or cancer, or uh, and it doesn't look like I have a good chance of a long, reasonable life that would follow, and I had a full cardiac arrest, would you want me to do CPR? Yes or no? And the answer would be no. No. And the third question, which is probably the most important question, here it is. If I had dementia such that, and, or a severe, uh, dementia, enough to say that I stopped eating and drinking, 
Uh, to keep me alive, uh, I would need a feeding tube and or IV fluids. Would you want me to have a feeding tube? The feeding tube is the hardest of the questions and the hardest for the families to answer. And I really, if I don't know who my family members are and I come to the need for a feeding tube, do not put a feeding tube down my nose or my or, or jejunostomy, jejunostomy or uh, feed me artificially. Let me go. And you know, the data says up until we developed IV fluids and learned how to go put in feeding tubes in the mid-1900s, up until that point, people died gently. They would have 10 days. They would dehydrate. Pain medicines wouldn't be needed because your natural endorphins kind of kick in. And people just gently go out after 10 days when they stop eating and drinking. But what we do is we hydrate the heck out of them and we keep them alive and then they have to starve to death. Well, then we put the feeding tube so they don't starve to death and they can live years in the nursing home. Um, which you do not want. Which is, I think people are becoming no. more aware of these problems. As you say, they just started in the mid-1900s, and in the past 70 years or so, we're fully aware that this is not the best no. policy. And most doctors will advise pa families of patients, just think about it. Do you really think your mom or dad yeah. wants to continue like this? And yeah. that, that makes the difference. But So how many feeding tubes you think are put in? I like to think not in, many. In Brookings. Oh, in Brookings? Not very many, really. Throughout yeah. the years, I've watched it. I've put in feeding tubes, uh, sometimes very temporarily. i put in long-term feeding tubes, but not very many. Not very many. And it's become less and less. Uh, and to be honest with you, I had a feeding tube uh, from May the 10th through about two months, month and a half later, just in case that my gut wouldn't work. But they pulled it, and then I could go sailing. So that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the feeding, uh, there's a need in there your was a case. Time and a you place were treated for, for cancer. You had yep. major surgery. You needed the feeding tube, right. and it was not the fact that we expected you to be gone the next month. We knew you were going to survive yep. this, and the doctors yep. bet on that, and that's why you got the there feeding it is. tube. So, <clears throat> but do you think that other towns, the feeding tube uh, numbers are as low as it is in Brookings? No. There are a lot of feeding tubes. In fact, we had a surgeon come up uh, com uh, looking at being a surgeon here, uh, and he said, you know, I've looked at your numbers, and it's amazing. You really do uh, a lot of surgery here, but I see no feeding tube placement. I used to be the feeding tube guy uh, of uh, Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico, you know, and I'm, I'm moving up here, and uh, I'm going, why aren't you putting in the feeding tubes? that we see so much in other places? And the answer is John Ramsey was sitting next to him. And he said, well, because we have established a lot of education about living wills and advanced directives here. And that was his answer. It was beautiful. It was a good answer. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I, had, I was going to answer. My answer was right there, and I went, ooh. Ooh, John did it. He took Ramsey care of did it. it. He's a well, wise man. It is I true. I love, love Ramsey. He yeah. is a very, very smart man uh, for an orthopedist. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> all right, on that note, <laughs> or, I mean, very, very all smart. you orthopedists, stop listening, and we're going to take a break. We'll be back right after these words. 
Welcome back to Prairie Doc. Joan Hogan here. Rick Holm is here. He, we, we were discussing living wills, but one thing you mentioned when you talked about living wills, and I think we pretty well covered it, was that your wife, Joni, is the nurse pastoral services person for your church. Yeah. I have no idea what that is. What is that role? Well, I think they, they have established with, they have three or four nurses that, that uh, go to that church and yes. help with visitation at home or in the nur- uh, in the nursing home or in the hospital. Well, what a nice service yeah. she's providing. But do you think that a lot of churches are doing this? I'm going to have to ask our pastor if they have I, anything like I that. Don't know. I don't well, know. Well, they have. You know your church. Does. I know your church. We do uh, too. With your 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 the the sister sister. Well, she would be pastoral services. She yes. is so. She's wonderful. a sweetheart. She's really good. Uh, but so it, it doesn't have to be a nurse. No, but in it your doesn't case, have to be a nurse. There's two or three nurses yeah. that are performing there for right. your church. Yeah. Well, that's nice. Well, and if you belong to any other churches in town, you might ask your pastor. I think it's huh. probably they do this. I would think so. And a lot of times, just the pastor the takes pastor on that care. The pastor does the burden of that. But possibly the pastor might ask a couple of nurses to help them out. They'd yeah. be great. There is one of the things. It's a nice that service. I can. It's a wonderful thing. I, and speaking of that kind of a service. Yes. Visiting people in need. Um, hospice. Uh, volunteer hospice uh, people get trained, and then. Um, become uh, hospice volunteers and they go out and visit and share love you know there's nothing you more don't have to be a nurse to be a hospice no. volunteer either. one uh, one of the hospice no- volunteers is carrie hegberg who is my nurse practitioner of years past god i just love carrie and what a um, caring person saw her last night because she sings with the uh, hopeful spirit chorale and we sang to the uh, nursing home uh, number of people in the neighborhoods last night. Uh, that's a wonderful and fun thing. That's one of those things that that provides helps. quite a nice service in this community. It really does. You know, if, uh, I can remember walking out of a room and realizing that I didn't prescribe any medicine to that guy. I laid my hands on him and w- examined him, and everything looked good. And just an older gentleman, and all I gave him was caring. You know, all I did was listen to what he had to say. Just listened as hard as I could. Uh, kind of repeated some of the the messages that he was sharing, so that he knew I heard him, and um, and 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 did listen. I mean, it was real listening. Uh, and uh, I'm walking out of the room, and he says, "You know, at 95, I could live forever if I kept you as my doctor." <laughs> <laughs> he liked that doctor. It was just the caring. Right. It was the caring that mattered. So there it is. Uh, you don't have to have all of the medical knowledge in the world to be very uh, medicinally helpful to people. Huh. Hmm. Well, and you have been, and uh, by not medicating and just listening makes a, makes a huge difference. It really does. You know, we're talking about different things with. Uh, Kind of end of life care or hospital care, but there's a, there's two different terms I've heard. One is hospice, one is palliative care. Is there a difference? Well, uh, hospice is paid for uh, is a, an, a, a, a uh, uh, Medicare program. It is uh, it is a special Medicare program where they will uh, reimburse. Uh, the hospice program for providing end-of-life care. Okay. And that means they give you, uh, you know, you can get special beds, you get special shower stuff, you get attention and help, and uh, 
Uh, you get visiting volunteers and support people and homemakers sometimes. It all depends upon your need. So it's in a, um, and the people who are qualify for hospice, uh, the doctor needs to be able to say in her or his heart, uh, you, you've got about six months to live. Now, we don't know when you people have six really months You don't really know? Live. You really don't. You kind of give it, you're pretty sick. And you know what? You know you you qualify for for uh, this improved Medicare benefit. Why not take it? I'm going to qualify you for hospice. And if that's if you're not, you know, if you're not uh, showing signs that it that six months is coming and you're deteriorating some, I mean, then they may we may kick you out of hospice. I kicked a bunch of people out of hospice because they do so well. I thought they were going to. Uh, a qualify and then after three or six months then they don't qualify anymore because he's still still alive i had one lady who had an advanced spread of adenocarcinoma of the abdomen and we opened her up and closed her after we removed as much of the tumor as we could and and then um, said well you qualify for hospice and then six months i kicked her out of hospice and in 10 years she died of heart failure in her nineties, <laughs> sometimes we don't know. Well. What, sometimes don't we know. don't know what's going to happen yeah. with these cancers. Yeah, old ca- old person with cancer. The cancer's old too, you know. Sometimes. Yeah. But uh, palliative care, on the other hand, it, you don't need that six month thing. You just need support. And the turn uh, in the ICU is you're caring for somebody in the ICU, and you're going. Your prognosis is pretty bad. Let's stop doing intervention. Let's do comfort. And so it is turning toward comfort, and it's more in hospital, but it, it is also after hospital too, but it isn't financed through the Medicare uh, financial uh, programs. So. so there's some difference in the two. Um, when you're talking about caring for people, and you were saying that you really helped this gentleman by listening, also when people are in immense pain near the end, we do have medications now to reduce that pain, yes, we don't do. we? Yeah. Do you think that they're used, or are people afraid that they're going to get sued if they prescribe them? Well, What's right. going on with that? In hospice, um, you know, forget about it. Do do what you have to to get them comfortable. Uh, if they ha- are a person with chronic back pain, uh, you know, four out of the five heroin abusers that are now uh, out there. Uh, started on on the the back pain medicines. The opioids. Or, yeah. Yeah. So you've got to be careful about opioids. But um, and when I was sick at at the Mayo, they were not quick with giving me enough pain medicine. <laughs> you wish you so had I more. I wish I had more. And uh, and I and certainly, uh, if my cancer returns, and I think I have about a fifty fifty shot at it, that if it does return, I'm going to want to have enough pain medicine. That's all there is to it. But there are a lot of ways of treating pain, particularly back pain. No, opioids don't work very well for back pain. Uh, and uh, basically, you get into a maintenance of opioids, and you're just as good as you were if you didn't have the opioids. The best treatment is going to be physical therapy and yoga and stretching and hands-on and, um, and uh, new kinds of exercises. And uh, there's a, you know, you can do acupuncture and you can go to the chiropractor and you can go to the physical therapist and you can do all these things to help with it because they, all those things do better than opioids for certain kinds of chronic pain. But when you've, when you've got obstructing uh, tumors 
Uh, if you're really at the end and you re really, really are there, you can medicate, right? Yes, you, you can. Make it, and yeah. I, and uh, <coughs> if you look at the doctors in the state and how much narcotics uh, have been prescribed, I would say that I'm Mr. Conservative. The fewest um, amount of narcotics prescribed except for my cancer patients, and I'm probably the highest prescribed. <laughs> <laughs> you okay. know, so who knows you where, where you're with, at. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty aggressive with, with the people who are suffering. I had a patient who we started the narcotic drip, and we turned up the drip, and we turned up the drip, and he's just suffering. And so we turned up the drip and turned up the drip, and he, um, he was, you know, he was no longer screaming in agony. And, and it then was he worth slipped it away. Yeah. Uh, that's the right thing to do. I, uh, was that uh, was that killing him? It probably uh, in, uh, quickened his his demise. Did um, is that uh, is that physician assisted suicide or uh, no. no? Is that euthanasia? No. No. It is giving palliative care. How's it that? It is giving palliative yeah. care. On that note, we're going to take a final break. We'll be back right after these words. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. We've been talking about uh, kind of end-of-life care or hospice care, palliative care, but during our conversation, uh, one of our listeners called in. Thank you for your question. And this listener has a question about facial cream for pre-cancer. Does it contain chemo? Do you know about this? Yes. Uh, oh, you do? Okay, I've never heard of this. Tell okay. us about it. Well, the, um, there, is a, there is a facial cream called Effudex, or it's... It's 5-fluorouracil. Mm -hmm. I took 5-fluorouracil, uh, three-day pump, six doses, along with two other drugs, cisplatin and um, Irina Tcan, as a triple anti-chemotherapy for pancreatic cancer uh, from October through January, uh, through, through February 1st, actually, the last, uh, February 3rd. Uh, FUDEX is the same as that 5-FU. It's a chemotherapy agent. It's in a cream. And when you, when you treat people, you apply it uh, daily. Uh, and little precancers start getting irritated by it. it it's, it's treating the cancer. So the little precancers get redder and angrier and redder and, and sorer and inflamed and... Um, the longer you can, and the more inflamed you can get them and tolerate it, uh, the more your chances of, you know, eliminating them completely. And then after a period of time, uh, after three to five, three to four weeks of this, uh, you stop it and you go a little steroid cream and take away the inflammation and the cancer goes away, or the pre-cancer goes but away. But is this Effudex a form of chemo? Yeah, I mean, it it's 5-FU. Okay. It's, it's, it uh, is. It's, uh, Five fluorouracil. It's it's Effudex, uh, okay. and um, and that's a cancer uh, preventative. And um, Retin A works kind of like it, only in a much milder form. Uh, so uh, I I like people to use Retin A because it it does that same thing, only in a much milder way. You just use it Retin A on a regular basis. So go ahead and use it. It's and Retin A takes away get, your your wrinkles as well. So oh, well, I tell people stuff. who have precancer and are blonde, blue-eyed people that they can use that and talk to your doctor about it. And what you want, you look like you want to talk to, uh, into the microphone. I, I just want to <laughs> say this is the end of the program. We're running out of time. The clock is running out, and we do hope you. All enjoyed our Prairie Doc radio program. We'll listen again for Prairie Doc, brought to you by the Avira Medical Group Brookings. Rick, that's all till next week. Thank you, Joan, and watch tomorrow night.
and stay healthy out there, people. 